0: So today we're finishing off a series in Ephesians. You may have noticed we missed out a chunk around chapter 5, which happens to be one of the more controversial passages. But um, we didn't duck it. We're looking at it today. But I'd just like to begin uh, with a little Christmassy advert this morning. Uh, We're only a few months away after all. Well, back to go. Nice decoration. (laughs) Elastic bangs. Elastic bangs from Harvey Nichols, Dad. Oh, sorry, I spent it on myself. Gift collection. Yeah, that's 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 what the range is called. Elastic bang gift set. Yeah. Right. Two, two. I got two. <laughs> oh. Oh. I do hope you haven't spent all your precious money on me, naughty boy. <laughs> Paper clips. Yeah. Harvey Nichols. Yeah. Yeah, they're from Harvey Nichols. So, uh, you know. Harvey Nichols. I don't think anyone's ever got you anything from Harvey Nichols. Wow. Before, so. <laughs> it's, it's toothpicks. Yeah. <gasps> you love toothpicks. Something for them, a bigger something for you. <laughs> a little something for them, a bigger something for you. Radox recently led um, with the slogan, Radox, be selfish. Burger King with, um, have it your way. And then they moved to, you're the boss. And then most recently, be your way, reminding people they said that they can and should live however they want to at any time. We're bombarded, aren't we, all the time with the value and the importance of me. In adverts all around us, in shows like The Apprentice, we're looking out and after number one, Um, and the ruthless pursuit of personal success is celebrated again and again. Last year I read a book called Selfie, um, which uh, examined the sort of self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-actualization, selfie-obsessed culture that we live in. The subtitle, how we became so self-obsessed and what it is doing to us, highlighting the issue. And it's built into the very fabric of our society. An article in the Harvard Business Review it uh, shows this in a number of areas. In economics, the author quotes someone called Adam Smith, who's known to be the father of modern economics, who said this, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. Or in science, the author reflects, Darwin also offered a powerful justification for selfish behavior. Those who were capable of looking out for number one would survive, while natural selection would quickly sweep away the less fit. A concept expanded into evolutionary psychology in Richard Dawkins' well known and well titled book, The Selfish Gene. Even the way we think about love uh, has been impacted by this stuff. In relationships, we often hear talk about not having my needs met, they're just not making me happy anymore. I haven't seen Love Island, but from what I hear, it champions the same self-focused view of love. All that to say the air we breathe in day in, day out, is contaminated by a preoccupation with and a a prioritization of the self. The toilet roll situation we had a few years ago, if you remember that. (laughs) Images of fighting in Tesco over Black Friday TV deals. The hoarding of yeast, remember those days? It's not all we see, obviously, Captain Tom and his extraordinary fundraising is just one of many examples of kindness. But generally, as a culture, we have put a huge amount of emphasis on the self, celebrated it, cultivated it, iPhone, iPad, iMac, i-everything. And by and large, it hasn't led to the life that we thought it might, right? Mental health struggles, depression, anxiety, loneliness, huge and growing problems in societies like ours. The focus on individual fulfillment and reaching my own potential has replaced the sense of being deeply embedded in community, often at the expense of our well-being. So into this milieu, one of the best-known philosophers of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, famous for being a staunch atheist for the essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, writes this, what the world needs, I'm ashamed to say is Christian love. What the world needs, I'm ashamed to say, as an atheist who's written against all of this stuff, is Christian love. And the passage we're going to read today is Paul, a leader in the early church, um, encouraging this early Christian community in just that, how to live lives of love, the sort of love that Russell says the world needs. But it starts, before we get to Paul in Ephesians with Jesus, In John 13, verse 34, Jesus gets his disciples together and he says to them, a new command I give you, love one another. To which the disciples would have said, that's not new. To which Jesus would have replied, I'm not through. I nicked that. Um, Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. As I have loved you. The definition of love wasn't to be drawn from the surrounding culture, from Rome or Greece or even Judaism, but instead from Jesus' example. And we know what Jesus' love looked like. It looked like washing his disciples' feet, welcoming those that the rest of society rejected. But most extraordinary, as one of his closest disciples, John, wrote years later, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus, as another disciple writes, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And it's just this love that's radical, this other-centered, sacrificial, costly, selfless love. It was against the grain then, and it is definitely against the grain now. The word used for this love, agape, love, is the least common word in classical Greek texts, but it is the most common word in the New Testament for love again and again and again sacrificial other-centered selfless love it's like a repeating melody line in a film you know how films develop like musical motifs for specific characters Uh, when you hear the motif weaved in your mind just goes to that character so for example just shout out who's this Anyone? It's Vader. What about this one? Indie, classic indie. Or this one. Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible. Sometimes it's the full-blown melody. Other times it's there, but it's nuanced and it's subtle, right? And it's a bit like that here. The disciples pick up this idea, this melody line of Jesus' sacrificial love, and they begin to weave it into their lives. And they begin to weave it into their communities. And Paul picks it up, and he he begins to weave it into his letters and into his instruction, which brings us to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got it open, if you start at verse 1, he says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there's that melody line right at the very beginning of the chapter, setting the scene for everything that's to follow. And then jumping down to verse 22, Paul begins to unpack what this means for followers of Jesus. In first century life, for husbands, wives, parents, children, And slaves and masters. So we're just going to look at each of those in turn. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love its wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So immediately this passage can be quite uncomfortable for us, right? I don't know whether you felt that, and sort of understandably so, really, Um, The language particularly of submission and headship today is synonymous with words like suppression and oppression and inequality and abuse. But Paul's use of these terms 2,000 years ago just doesn't carry the baggage that we put in them. In the original manuscript, the the verb um, submit isn't even used there in verse 22. It literally read like this, wives to your own husbands. Wives what to your own husbands? We have to read the verse before, because verse 22 borrows the verb from verse 21, which says, be filled with the Spirit, singing and giving thanks to God. And then it says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice how it's addressed to everyone. Submit means to put yourself under. And all that follows in this passage is the outworking of everyone submitting to each other, preferring one another with selfless, other-centered love. And there's that melody just weaving in again. Paul applies it specifically then in the next verse, wives to your own husbands. But we have to see what Paul is saying here to wives is only what he has just said to everyone, to everyone. (laughs) And it's not hugely dissimilar to what he goes on to say to the husbands. In verse 25, if you see that, they uh, they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, Jewish men would pray each morning, thanking God that they were not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Greek and Roman culture was even worse. Wives were seen as property, women without value. John Stott remarks, It is against this dark backdrop that Paul's teaching shines with such a bright light. You see, against the culture, he says, you are to love your wives sacrificially, selflessly, preferring them, cherishing them. If wives are encouraged to submit and come under their husbands, then in an extraordinarily countercultural move, the husband is told to go even lower. This isn't about power structures, which is the way we sort of think of it today, right? But more like serving structures, The other challenging term here is the term headship. Whatever Paul means by the word, and it is debated, scholars vary, um, but there's two things. The two things it absolutely cannot mean are, I think, the two things that we are most concerned that it might mean, most worried that it might mean, and that's domineering authority and inequality, but it just cannot mean those things. It cannot mean domineering authority because the primary context for understanding its meaning is the immediate one. Jesus being the head of the church. What does that look like? Domineering authority? No. He goes to the cross for the church. There's no higher price he could have paid for the church. There's no greater sacrifice he could have made for the church. no lower position that he could have adopted to save the church. There's just no way this could ever mean domineering authority power play or anything like that. And it is shocking that it's ever been used in that way. And it cannot mean inequality because of everything that has been said in the rest of the letter which has been addressed to both men and women, wives and husbands. All are children of God. All have been chosen by him. All are loved by him. All have a purpose to walk into. All have extraordinary dignity and value. See, unlike the three surrounding cultures, what Paul and Jesus before him introduced, the radical new thing that they introduced, which is so normal to us, but absolutely was against the grain then. The thing that they introduced at the time was unthinkable. The thing they introduced is equality. See, Christian homes were the only place in that day where husband and wife would sit as equals. The two things that we are most worried that this might mean are two things that it simply cannot mean. You know. Instead, this relationship is meant to look like a beautiful dance of selflessly preferring the other. The husband lays down his life so that his wife will flourish, who in turn uses her flourishing to selflessly give to her husband, who is built up and then lays down his life to selflessly serve his wife. And on and on and on. Mimicking and retelling the story of how God in Jesus had loved them all the way to the cross. And the melody is so loud here. It runs completely against the culture we live in, doesn't it? Where self is king. But to put it simply, Paul is saying to them to be Jesus-y. Be Jesus-y. If you're married, then... Are you dancing this dance, or are you fighting your own corner? Can you hear this melody in your marriage? When Lizzie and I um, were first married, we realized that um, we were actually pretty different in a lot of ways, not least um, in expe- expectations around the sort of daily review, right? Before getting married, I'd lived with a bunch of guys, and after work, we'd get home, and the conversation would sort of go like this. Good day, yep, yeah. Fine. You, yep." Yeah. That was it. Short, sweet, easy. <laughs> that is not what happens anymore. Honestly, Uh, at the beginning, we get in from work and I'd say, oh, how was your day? You know, expecting a sort of 20-second summary at the max. But what followed was just like a shock to me. I don't know, have you ever seen the the, uh, series 24? You know, it's supposed to be done in real time, like you spend 24 hours watching 24 hours. Well, I felt like we were reliving the day in real time. This was not a sort of stay-standing conversation. It was find a chair, settle in, get a cup of tea. 20 seconds had gone out of the window a long time ago. It was a blow-by-blow account of the day, along with all the thoughts and feelings and later reflections upon it. And I just could not believe the level of detail. And and Lizzie would say to me, oh, and how was your day? And I knew that fine was not going to cut it (laughs) at all. Um, I begin to desperately rack my brains and starting to feel the pressure of the moment would just sort of crumble. And like, yeah, it, was, it was really, yeah, it's good, it's fine. <laughs> but the game had changed. And so Lizzie would then start to help me out a little bit, you know, tease it out. Who did you see? What did you do for who did you, how did you feel? You know, trying to help me along. And I began to realize that Lizzie feels loved when I've, and valued when I ask her questions about her day and how she's doing, when I show interest in her day. But that could not be further from what makes me feel loved. You see, when I'm asked too many questions, I just begin to feel stressed and honestly interrogated, right? (laughs) But love means you change for the other. And it's just a silly, small example. But honestly, I think the way forward is in small things. Just like getting up to make cups of tea in the morning. Like forgiving. Like letting go of grudges. Like getting up early with the kids. Like talking about your day when you don't really want to. Just regular, other-centered Decisions that are added together over time become like pieces of a mosaic where you begin to see the face of Jesus emerge. Be jesus So next, Paul addresses children and parents. If you turn down to chapter six, verse one, he says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So when a child was born, they would um, place them at their father's feet, and the father would decide whether to keep the child or expose the child, which meant leaving it To the elements to die you see a father could sell or even kill a child without consequence children had no rights no protections no status fathers no responsibility or limitation to their authority and so it's remarkable that paul writes here directly to the children the assumption is that they're present in the christian home in worship with roles to play and that alone bestows extraordinary dignity and value but the real shock was what paul Said to the parents in verse four, Paul introduces limits for the parents. Don't provoke, don't provoke them, and responsibilities for the parents. Train them, nurture them, care for them, teach them. And it's difficult to appreciate how countercultural this was, how shocking that anyone would seek to limit the power of a parent. But we begin to hear that subtle melody again, because what Paul requires the parents is going to take time and it's going to take care. And as any parent knows, selfless decisions again and again and again and again. I don't know whether you've ever seen these um, pictures. They're under the title, Why My Child is Crying. There's just a few of them. <laughs> familiar to some of us. Patience, right? It requires patience and selfless love. I have four, and honestly, it's wonderful and beautiful and costly, you know, changing bedding at 3 a.m., sitting through episodes of Mr. Tumble. I mean, that is sacrificial love, if any of you parents know that. Um, this is uh, this little picture of Jesse here. He's my, th- he's my third, right? Like butter couldn't melt, right? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Not long before that, on a bike ride, we'd, as we'd been going past people, he'd just been shouting to all of them, see you later, suckers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, I remember camping at a Christian festival when my eldest two were about four and two. Lizzie had gone to the meeting there, and had, um, I'd managed to settle them. And uh, after ages, I sat down to read a book, tired, done, just, you know, finished with the day, only to hear the dreaded, dad coming from the tent from Reuben. So I get up and I go in, only to see Ezra standing in his cot, having pulled his nappy off and having weed all over the cot. And thanks to that nice uh, mesh netting on the sides of those cots, all over his brother Reuben as well, <laughs> and the bedding. Uh, so Reuben's there with a slightly confused look on his face. And it was one of those moments where you were just totally lost for words. Like I stood there, just absolutely lost for words, just sad in a field without my wife. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, Just lost for words, but Ezra, clearly feeling like he had the perfect words, just looks at me, raises his hands like this and goes, Cheeky monkey? (laughs) Unbelievable. Selfless love, right? A parent requires selfless love. The author uh, Stephen Covey tells a story of a father who came to him saying, I don't understand my son, he never listens to me. And he says, say that again. He says, I don't understand my son, he never listens to me. He says, say that again. I don't understand my son. He never listens to me. And then he says to the father, normally if you want to understand someone, you need to listen to them. See, it takes time and it takes energy to listen and not be writing a talk or working on a problem in your head at the same time. To be present, to nurture, to care, to grow. And there's that melody just weaving through again. Parents have to set aside their own desires and nurture their children. Children, likewise, are not just to do what they want, but come under their parents' instruction. And so we have another dance, of mutual submission, sacrificial, other-centered love, right? As each seek to be Jesus-y. So finally, we get to the last of the three couplets in verse um, 5, if you read that, if you've got your Bibles. Um, bondservants, bond or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he w- w- will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Masters, do the same as stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So slavery was just a, just a reality of first century, the first century Mediterranean context. Slaves making up to maybe even 60% of the population. It was different in many ways to the transatlantic slave trade that we often think of. It wasn't race-based, uh, nor was it for life. Freedom could be bought. But it was still the owning of another human with no limits on cruelty on the cruelty a master could inflict, even death. And Paul here isn't condoning it. As N.T. Wright says, this was the, simply the way the world worked. And so he begins by addressing slaves, which in itself was dignifying. They had a role and a purpose as followers of Jesus. They were expected to be in this community listening alongside the masters. And he instructs them to work hard at all times. Serve your master, but in doing so, know that you're actually serving your true master, Jesus. And there's this sort of subtle repositioning of authority here, right? God is the real authority they're serving, God who is over both them and their master. But the real shock is what Paul goes on to say to the masters. Stop threatening them, he he says, limiting their freedom and authority. Why? And this is the thing. Because God, he says, is above both of you, and both of you are the same to him. This was controversial in the extreme, the slave and the master in the eyes of God of equal value, and they need to treat each other as such. John Stott writes this, the gospel immediately began even in the first century to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion that destroyed it. So Paul sows seeds that would in time undermine the whole institution, but what about in the meantime? And you begin to hear the melody weaving in again. Submit to one another, serve one another, whether master or slave, by working hard with integrity as if working for God. And perhaps the closest equivalent for us today, though imperfect, is employment. One author writes this, it is possible for the housewife or husband to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it or to sprinkle in the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Our working lives, whether easy or hard, fair or not, are to be marked by a willingness to prefer and serve the other with diligence and integrity. To be marked by being Jesus. There's a famous Shakespeare line from As You Like It, all the world's a stage, and men and women players upon it. You know, every setting we're in is almost like a stage upon which we get to retell the story of the gospel. To imitate Jesus. Marriage is a stage to tell that story. Parenting, a stage to tell that story. Where and how we work, a stage to tell that story. The story of countercultural, sacrificial, other centered love. The love that we've experienced and received from Jesus. Be Jesus y. I read recently of three women. Rebecca, Eti, and Ratna in Indonesia who were caught teaching street children about Jesus and they were ripped from their families and taken to prison. On entering the cell, the stench of human excrement, urine and sweat hit them and the heat making it hard to breathe. As they crawled through the darkness, they noticed the outline of people crouched against the walls. They were jihadists, drug smugglers, and murderers. This cell was reserved for India's most dangerous. And you can imagine the fear, the loss, the anger, the sadness, the confusion that they must have felt. And in that moment, they sensed Jesus with them. And the next morning, Rebecca asks the guard for some water and some disinfectant. He agrees, and the women set about scrubbing the feces-covered walls and floors and washing off years of filth. And he says in the book, As their cloths, clothes, and hands browned from the filth, they reflected on how Jesus had willingly washed his disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas, who would betray him. If he could do that, then they could do this. If he acted in love and humility towards his enemies, then so would they. So when they noticed their inmates malnourished, they cared for them. And when others didn't have enough to eat, they gave them their own rations." And things began to shift. One of the guards, reading Rebecca's notes, realized she was a doctor. And he comes to her explaining that he has, has these terrible stomach cramps and he can't afford to go to the doctor. And she listens to him and she treats him. And over the next month, 40 prison guards come to her for help, for medical assistance. And it says, so they simply loved those who were unlovely, those who couldn't return their love, those that God had placed in front of them. Eventually, the prison governor, moved by what he sees, releases them early. But over those two years that they're there, they led 47 inmates and guards to Jesus. 47. And then agree to continue going back because they had people to care for. Isn't that crazy? Can you hear the melody in that story? It's so loud. Other-centered, sacrificial love. The speaker Tony Campolo tells the story of a man called Joe who worked in a salvation army refuge. Joe loved and followed Jesus and he went about caring and serving the people as best he could. He would wipe up sick after these men had come in drunk and desperate. He would clean them and care for them. He would listen to them and talk with them, taking time to hear their stories. He took time to know many of their names, would rejoice with them when they made steps forward and weep with them when they wept. But then suddenly Joe died. Many of the men he had cared for were upset and one particularly was deeply moved and just burst into tears. One of the helpers goes over to him and asks if he's okay. And he just erupts, I miss Joe. Joe cared about me. Who's going to care about me now? Who's going to help me? And the helper responds, you you need to meet Jesus. He'll help you. And the man just lifts his head. And asks is he like joe you see we are to be jesusy to love like jesus loved us to tell that story again and again it's costly and it's painful painful and it's massively countercultural. but it's also beautiful and in Bertrand russell's words exactly what the world needs